Luke chapter 12. Luke is the third biography of Christ in your New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go to Luke chapter 12. Uh, this is the second in a three-part series entitled Happy Money. Uh, there are many uh, emotions associated with money, resources, possessions, and stuff. All of us probably know someone, though we rarely see this whole model in ourselves, but we all know someone with an unhealthy attachment to money and stuff. Uh, I read about a man whose dream it was to drive his uh, fancy car, a BMW, up the Pacific Coast Highway, a real kind of turny, curvy, beautiful road in California. So he set aside some time and he did just that. But as he was going through those curves at high speed, he lost control of his car and the car began sliding and skidding out of control and it was headed straight toward the cliff. He managed right before the car went off the road and down the cliff to leap from the driver's door. Uh, but unfortunately, his left arm got hung up in the door and it literally tore it off at the shoulder. The car went over the cliff. Uh, a truck driver behind him saw the whole thing unfold. He pulls over. When he gets out to check on the man who's standing there with no arm, the man's looking over the cliff saying, my BMW, my BMW, my BMW. The truck driver said, man, are you all right? Listen, you've got bigger problems than your BMW. You've lost your arm. To which the man realized that he had lost his arm at the shoulder, looked over the edge and said, my Rolex, my Rolex. That is an unhealthy attachment to money and stuff. Uh, last week from Philippians chapter 4, we learned several things. The first thing we learned is that happiness is far more about, about who than it is what. Uh, children intuitively know this. Children at 10 or 12 know that a sleepover or a campout or a pool party or a ball game or a ball event, uh, um, even practice sometimes, that's far more fun, that's far more valuable than $50 in a piggy bank. Happiness in your life is not about money. There is a connection, and we'll talk further about that today, but it's not the lasting joy that many people uh, are searching we also learned that no thing can make you happy. It's not like we can go to the happy store and buy the happy what and guarantee happiness for the rest of our lives because if you're like me and you're like most, happy what always winds up becoming happy what else. Uh, we also learned that anything that undermines your peace undermines your happiness. You cannot be happy without peace. So think about all the financial decisions we make, the choices we make. Think about how we've set up our family budget. If it doesn't fill us with peace, there's no way we can be happy. And Paul taught us from Philippians 4, contrary to popular culture, that it's really all about the peace, not the plenty. Paul said, I know what it is to have plenty, and I know what it is to have nothing. The secret is neither plenty nor want. The secret is having peace on either side of that equation. Now, when it comes to our money and our finances, people are shocked to know how much the Bible has to say about it. You can read Proverbs by the dozens. You can read specific passages in both historical books and the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus had a lot to say about money, resources, possessions, stuff. The apostles and books like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Philippians Money, possessions, and stuff is throughout from cover to cover your Bible. And most of us believe, unfortunately, that the connection between 
money and happiness is determined by the amount of money we actually have. In other words, if we're not happy, it's only because we don't believe we have enough money or possessions or resources. And yet that's not at all what the Bible says. And we'll talk further about this next time. The Bible says the amount of money should have nothing to do with your happiness because we all know people with a lot who are miserable. We all know people with a little who are happy. The Bible says the secret is contentment, peace, how you manage what you have, whether it is a lot or a little. That's what brings about the peace. So I want to begin today, like I did last time, with a very simple question. How much money would it take to make you happy? How much money would it take to make you happy? Now, I think regardless of where we are in our faith walk, we've all kind of fantasized what it might be like to win the lottery. I mean, what would it be like to have to find, you know, a hundred million dollar windfall of some sort? Pay off all your debt, buy another house, maybe a vacation home, assure your children of a quality college education, set yourself up financially. Um, and security-wise, how much money would it take to make you happy? Now stop for a moment. How much money would it take to overcome your discontentment is what I'm really asking. How much money would God have to give you to overcome that little bit of greed that you wrestle with or your debt, like I said a minute ago? Now look, without a crystal ball, without a seance without some kind of Jedi mind trick, I can answer that question for every person in this room. The answer to the question, how much money would it take you to make you happy, is more than I have right now, right? See, in our mind, the only reason our money hasn't made us happy yet is because we don't have enough. We need more. But now look, more is not just a temptation when it comes to money, resources, and finances. We've seen people struggle with more in a lot of areas. Have you ever seen someone devote themselves to health, weight loss, exercise? And boy, they start changing their diet and they start changing their habits and they start getting healthy and, and all of a sudden the weight starts coming off and the weight starts coming off and, and people start to notice and, and, and people say, wow, how much have you, have you lost? And they say 15 pounds or 25 pounds. But then there's this point where everybody around them says, stop, that's enough, right? And yet, what do they do? They often keep going, even to the point of becoming unhealthy. People do this with activity and recreation. I mean, if, if, if one of your buddies invited you to do something you never dreamed you'd ever do, and so for the first time, you go and experience something like you've never known. I don't know, you fly in a hot air balloon or something. But you find the whole experience absolutely uh, rapturing. I mean, it is just the funnest thing you've ever done in your life. Well, if a little is good, we tend to say, then more will be better. So we do it next weekend, and we do it the weekend after, and we do it the third weekend and the fourth weekend. Think about security as we age. I told you last time, if you don't have peace with $1,000 in an IRA, you're not going to have peace with $100,000 in IRA. Because remember, the secret is not the plenty. The secret is the peace. The secret is the mindset, the perspective, the contentment. As we age, we tend to look at what we've managed to set aside and wonder whether or not it's enough. And if we could have more, would we feel more secure. So there's all kinds of issues and areas in life where more plays a decisive role. But in my mind, 
none more so than that regarding money. If you were to look up every Bible passage on money, resources, and stuff, and in my career I have multiple times, if you put them all out on several pages and you examined every passage, everything the Old Testament says about money, everything Jesus said about money, everything the New Testament says about money, you'd boil that down to three directives, three words. Jesus gave us these. The Apostle Paul highlights these. These can be found in the Old Testament, prophetic works, as well as the wisdom literature. And here they are. The Bible on money boils down to three directives. Give, save, and live. Give, save, and live. We are commanded, according to this book and by the words of Jesus himself, first to give. Now, let me be very, very basic here. That means when I get paid on Friday, before I do anything with the money God has granted me, I am commanded by Scripture to give some of it back to God. Give first. Now, it's a very countercultural message because generosity is not something that comes naturally to most of us. In a culture that's consumed by discontentment, that constant drive for more, greed and debt, along comes Jesus and says, give, save, and live. Now, we've talked about this before. Some people mistakenly assume that because the idea of a tithe, 10% of what we make coming back to God's church, uh, is Old Testament that's found in the book of Malachi chapter 4 that somehow we don't need to live by that standard. Now listen, I'll grant you that, I'll argue that, but you need to understand that throughout the New Testament the tithe is considered to be the least we ought to give back. So a lot of people hear me talk about a tithe, they go home with a calculator, they figure up how much they make, they multiply it by 10% and they say, wow, I could never give that much back to God. Let me tell you a quick story. Before starting Grace Community Church, I made a lot of money in my profession. I made a whole lot of money. Uh, I, I, I've actually written a check for a brand new truck before and a brand new bass boat before because I had that kind of money in my account. No mother church or sister church financed this church. We started it from scratch, from the ground up. That first Sunday, I had no idea what I was going to make. It wound up taking three years three years as pastor of this church working full-time to breach the $13,000 a year mark. So I went from making this to this. Now at the time, my wife was a school teacher and she made about $26,000. So if you put 26 with 13, you come up with $39,000. Now at that time, even though we were in the habit of giving more than 10% to our local church, we examined our finances, and I said, I don't know how I'm going to pay the mortgage if I pay 10% in tithe. So what we did was we cut it to five, and we had an eye towards seven. And as soon as we could get more money, we gave seven. And when we gave seven, then we had an eye toward nine. And when we got to where we could give nine, then we put our eyes on 10. And when we got to 10, we put our eyes on 12. The interesting thing about God and his commands, in one simple command, give the tithe carve off the 10%, he accomplishes a dozen different things. In order for you to give as you should to God's work, the local church, you've got to sit down and figure out how much you make. Secondly, you've got to figure out where is it going. Thirdly, you've got to distribute it 
so that using a calculator, you can say, this is how we'll give that 5% or this is how we'll give that 8%. That's a budget. Nine out of 10 young couples, when I do premarital counseling, and I do a lot of it in a calendar year, I always spend one session on money and finances. And I ask them the question, do you have in a computer, on a spreadsheet, or do you have written down on a piece of paper, uh, even in your cell phone, uh, do you have some kind of family budget structure? And nine out of 10 of the young couples about to get married and start their lives together say no. No, we don't. So when consequently I ask them, where does this money go and where does that money go and how much do you spend on this? No one ever knows. It's like we're flying along by the seat of our pants. There's this amazing amount of stress and pressure that's on every one of us financially. We're anything but happy when it comes to our money. And that's because we're driven by this idea of more, more, more. Along comes the Bible. Along comes Jesus. And he makes it very simple. When you think about your money, your possessions, and your stuff, the first thing you need to do is give. The second thing you need to do is save. And the third thing you need to do is live on the rest. Now, imagine that in America. If I give 10%, and let's say I can match that and save 10%, that means that my wife and me, we live on 80% of what I make. 20% of our annual salary would buy us a brand new vehicle. But we choose not to. And so should you. 20% of our annual salary, because we've given 10, we've saved 10, and we're forced to live on the 80, 20% would buy us a bigger home. 20% would mean this or that or the other. If more is the governing factor, the primary motivation in your life when it comes to money and resources, every time, every time you'll spend that 20 on yourself. Let me, let me, let me make a simple uh, statement, and I want you to fill in the blank. Man, man, I'm blessed because I, you fill in the blank. Man, I am blessed. I what? Have a wife who loves me and honors me. I'm blessed. Man, I'm blessed. I have two healthy children or six healthy children. Man, I am blessed because I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Man, I am blessed because I have a job that's steady. And while I may not love it, it at least helps me survive and pay the bills. No one, no one in this room would respond, man, I am blessed. I'm making 60 monthly payments on a used Mercedes Benz. Nobody would say that. Nobody would say, man, I am blessed. I'm mortgaged to the hilt in an enormous house. Nobody would say that. That's because happiness has to do with the who and not the what. It's like in life we know what's most important. We, I think, intuitively know what matters to God. And yet there's some kind of disconnect when it comes to our checkbooks, when it comes to our wallets. I mean, is there anyone here who doesn't believe giving to the needs of others, giving to further God's kingdom is somehow not more virtuous than spending money on ourselves? And yet why does it feel so different to give $1,000 than it does to spend $1,000 on ourselves. We know what should matter most. We know what's more virtuous. We know what's more noble. And yet there's some kind of disconnect. We know what's important, but typically that's not what we make important. Here's one of the big deals today. Remember this. How we use our money should reflect what's important to God. Period. That's what Jesus says. How we use our money 
should reflect what's important to God. Jesus is going to say that in Luke chapter 12. A blessed life, blessed of God, is not about getting more. It's about being more or becoming more. Now, the man in our text was all about more. And when we read this story, it's going to be familiar to most of you, I would imagine. This man accomplished the American dream. This man, because of a huge financial windfall in his life, was set for life. This man had financial security at likely a very early age. And yet at the very end of the story, God says, man, you've missed the whole point. If you are motivated by more, God says the same thing to you. You're missing the point. Look at me at Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, teacher, now, this was a, a term of not endearment, but respect. Rabbi, your, your scripture may say. Rabbi. This is a man who has influence in the community. So somebody comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, people respect you. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, stop for a moment and think about this. Because I not only want you to consider this in your life, I want you to consider this in our national setting as well. What this man asks of Jesus only sounds fair to us. Jesus, tell my brother to be fair. Jesus, tell my brother to be just. That's what this young man is seeking from Jesus. He's searching for justice. When I think about the socialism movement in America, it sounds good to a 20-year-old to have no college debt to have everything paid for by others. In fact, if some in our nation had their way, we would all have the same thing. Despite whether or not socialism has ever worked around the world, it fails every time. Go home and do a little research on Venezuela. There are some in our midst that believe it's unfair for me to have more than you or you to have more than someone else. That is how this young man felt. Master, teacher, rabbi, you have respect. You have authority. Tell my brother to be fair. Watch how Jesus responds. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? I don't have that kind of authority. Now, here's the transition I really want you to see. Then he said to them, watch out. Watch out. I've seen something in this young man that I want to warn you all about. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Okay, wait a minute. How in the world does Jesus go from fairness to greed? That's quite a leap, isn't it? I mean, the young man's just asking for some advice. Use your influence and get my brother to be fair. It's only just that I receive half of our parents' estate. Jesus leaps from there to greed. He says, watch out, watch out. That is a subtle form of greed. You're scratching your head thinking, how can that be? He's about to explain. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I say in the United States of America, it does. Life does consist in an abundance of possessions. I say that in America, we are comfortable being motivated by more, bigger, better. Keep reading. Then he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So this guy's a farmer, okay? He thought to himself, 
what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. Unfortunately, this is Pastor Mike's mantra. Bigger, stronger, faster, better. Okay? It's, it's a motivating factor in many of our lives. I'll tear down my little barns and I'll build bigger barns because bigger is better. More is good. Keep reading. And there I'll store up all my surplus grain. Verse 19, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is the American dream. Early retirement, financial security, peace of mind. Verse 20, but God said to him, you're a fool. You're a fool because you look at it that way. You're a fool because you've missed the point. This very night, your life is going to be demanded from you. Then who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. That's a warning to all of us. This is how it will be. Warning. This is what keeps Pastor Mike in check. This is what gives me peace and contentment driving a $15,000 vehicle instead of a $65,000 vehicle. Even though deep down I know it would be better. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. This is how it will be, Jesus said. Watch. For whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. See, all of us know intuitively it's better in this life to be rich toward God than to be rich toward ourselves. All of us would feel better about ourselves, I think, spiritually speaking, if we felt richer toward God than we do ourselves. And yet there's this disconnect. From this passage, I've written down three rules to live by. Here's rule number one. Possession by possessions always leads to bondage. If you are possessed by your possessions, whether you know it or not, you are in financial bondage. Jesus gives us the whole point of this in verse 15. He says, be on your guard against even subtle forms of greed, what you might call fairness, what you might say you deserve, be on your guard. That's a subtle form of greed because life, happiness, peace, contentment, that's not about how much you have. That's not about how much you own. God knows something that statistically Americans don't know. When we are possessed by our possessions, we're in financial bondage. Let me give you a definition for financial bondage. Financial bondage is when money becomes an overriding concern that robs you of time, energy, and thoughts. When money is the overriding concern to where we go to college, when money is the overriding concern to where we go on vacation, when money is the overriding concern in what kind of car I drive, when money is the overriding concern and you fill in the blank, whether you know it or not, you may be in financial bondage. See, the real story behind the wealthy landowner is his perspective. He is not being scolded here because he was successful. Please don't misunderstand. He was not being scolded here because he was a go-getter. Please don't misunderstand. He's certainly not being scolded because he was wealthy. He's called a fool because whether he knew it or not, his possessions possessed him. So again, God comes along, very simply says, look, the solution to that is give, save, and live. Very simple. Here's rule number two. Rule number two. Make your life of what you give, not what you get. Again, 
The man's sin was not his success nor his wealth. His sin was his selfishness. Did you notice how many times, beginning in verse 17, three short verses, the word I or my or myself is used? It's like 10, 11 times in three verses. What shall I do with my windfall? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. Then I'll say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. The problem with this man is that God had blessed him financially, and he thought only of himself. That's why giving is first. See? God's prescription to greed is, when he gives you something, to give some of it back first. That is the solution. That's the prescription. This man's shortfall, this man's uh, shortcoming, was that he missed out not only on the blessing of now, but he missed out on the blessing of the next life as well. Do you know what Jesus teaches us about greed in this passage? He teaches us that greed is the assumption that everything's for my consumption. The, 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 The assumption this man made was that I have made such money this year, it's all for me. It never crossed his mind. He did save it. That's why he built bigger barns. And he did live on it. That's why he said, I can eat, drink, and be merry. But the key ingredient he left out was number one. He didn't give it. Eat, drink, be merry. Give, save, live. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3 that it's all about your focus. The Apostle Paul wrote, focus on the things that are above. Now, stop for a minute, because I know how difficult that is. You know, when I sit down with my checkbook once a month to pay my bills, or I go online to do my banking, or when you sit down with a spreadsheet or a Quicken program, and you're trying to organize yourself financially, it is very difficult at that moment to think on the things of God. It's much easier to think on tangible things. A thousand dollars is something I can measure. It's something I can calculate. The things of God necessarily aren't. And yet over and over in the scripture, it says, when it comes to your money, focus first on things that are above. That's what Jesus meant when he said, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God, who is not focused on things above. Paul goes on, where Christ holds the highest position, keep your mind on those things, things that are above, not on on worldly things. It is no coincidence in my mind that the word miser and the word miserable come from the same root word. The word miser, the word miserable, come from the same root word. God didn't bless us financially so we could hoard it all for ourselves. The only way to release that grip of materialism, that drive for more, is to learn how to give. And look, most people intend to be generous. They simply believe they can't afford it. Like I said a moment ago, When you hear me talk about a tithe, or you hear anyone talk about a tithe, or you read the passage for yourself, and you do the math, you say, I can't afford that. I cannot give 10% of what I make to the, I can't, I can't give it to the, I can't do it. Well, then set a goal of three. Set a goal of five. Put your eye on seven. If you're giving 10, don't stop there. Think about 12. That's what Jesus teaches. Here's Rule number three, rich toward God beats rich toward self every time, every time. Give, save, live, the Bible says. 
give a prioritized percentage of your income, a concrete figure that you carve off. You don't flippantly look in your wallet on Sunday and say, well, I've got a 20 and I've got a 5. The 20's for lunch, so the 5 goes in the pot. That's not a prioritized gift. It's certainly not a percentage of our income. That's what Scripture teaches. Sit down first and carve off that concrete figure and say, God, in order to keep me from falling victim, falling prey to subtle forms of greed, I am going to give this percentage of my income back to your work. I'm then going to try and save at least, part, at least half better even an equal amount. If I give 10, I'm going to save 10. And that's going to force me to live within my means. Do you know how much Americans spend of their annual income today? This statistic is two years old, 2015. The average American household does not live on 80% of their income. They live on 114% of their income. That's why we're in debt. That's why we pay credit card companies. Rule number three, rich toward God beats rich toward self every time. It leads to financial freedom. Let me give you a definition. Financial freedom means relief from worry and stress. Remember, compare that to financial bondage, where money is the overriding concern for everything. Now we're talking relief, a clear conscience, and an absolute assurance that God is in control. Jesus' advice Three words, give, save, and live. Think about it this way. Giving is what brings you joy. Giving produces the joy. Giving keeps greed in check. Saving leads to peace. Wouldn't it be nice to have a little nest egg in the bank just for emergencies? Just in case. And note, living leads to freedom. Giving brings joy. That keeps greed in check. Saving leads to peace. The Bible calls that wise. And living leads to freedom. I could own it, but I choose not to. I could own it, but at least I don't owe for it. You know one of the most beautiful things to me personally about giving a prioritized percentage of my income back to this church? Guilt-free enjoyment of stuff. See? When I ride up next to you on my classic Indian motorcycle that looks like an old gaudy Cadillac, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, and it's rumbling deep down low, mom, 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 mom. and the guy next to me is on a $600 Kawasaki, do you think I feel guilty about that? No, not at all. Because before I ever purchased the motorcycle, before I ever figured out how to pay for the motorcycle, I had carved off 10% of what God had given me and given back to this church. I gave first, I saved second, and I figured out a way to fit that bike into my 80%. And so can you. Don't walk out of here today and say, oh, give, save, live, yeah. I'll do that when I can afford it. Funny thing, you'll never afford it. You got to do it. That's the message of Jesus, and don't miss the point. We're going to end the service with just a time of reflection. I'm not going to ask you to come forward because I don't want you thinking, hey, look at him. He must have a lot of debt. He's up there praying. <laughs> I guess she doesn't give to the church. Look at her up there. I think I saw a tear in her eye. No, we'll do that in our seats, okay? <clears throat> if your relationship with Jesus Christ isn't strong enough, growing enough, 
to take him at his word, I'm challenging you today to do so. Do you know that God's words regarding money and finance, tithing specifically in the book of Malachi chapter 4, is the only place in the scripture where God dares you to do what he says? Did you know that? Go ahead, he said. Give 10%. Test me in this. And see if I don't pour open the windows of heaven and bless you like you've never known. Let's pray. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, maybe we could play just a little bit of quiet music. Just for about a minute or so, I want you to ponder what we've discussed from Luke chapter 12, and then I'll close in prayer.